Hi everybody, you're listening to the Rogue Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. This podcast is about rope bondage. Rope bondage is edge play with inherent risk, and we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to our episode zero on safety and consent in rope before attempting it. Find it at the top of our FetLife page, Rope Podcast. Fox is a rigger and Maya is a bottom. We're rope partners who've been practicing together for around five years in Bangkok, which is our home, and we love to share our passion for rope with the wider community. Today's episode is sponsored by Friction Live. Friction Live offers a variety of kink classes, mostly centered around rope and things you can do to complement your rope, which you can follow along with from wherever is comfortable for you. You can attend the class live or view it recorded at your convenience. Check them out on frictionlive.ca. <laughs> <laughs> so Maya, today we're very excited to be talking to Wooden Tiger, speaking mm-hmm. of Friction Live. He is a polyamorous pansexual relationship anarchist who dabbles in correctional sadism. And we're going to be asking him in a minute what that means. <laughs> using rope bondage along with a host of other kinks, including pressure points, rough body play, knife play and fire cupping. He draws on knowledge from experiences teaching physiology and anatomy at the college level, so he knows what he's talking about, and many years of martial arts, his training and practice as a registered acupuncturist as well. In addition, Tiger is one of the facilitators of Friction Life, and we have had a lot of fun watching classes uh, either facilitated by or featuring Tiger, so we thought it would be a great idea to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Tiger. Hello, everybody. All right, so Tiger, let's start you off with the usual question. Um, how did you begin with rope in the first place? Well, that's kind of an interesting story, actually. It started when I was 16 years old in training martial arts. Mm-hmm. I got I got introduced to hojujutsu. Nice. And really interested in it as a method of uh, subdue and capture um, for when I was training. And um, at the time when I when I first learned, I only learned a couple hojujutsu ties. So I was really interested to learn more. Mm-hmm. So I took to the internet and basically started to do research on rope. And all of a sudden, um, some very interesting pictures popped up with, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> with, uh, with basically scantily clad people tied in rope. And, uh, my focus changed from researching Hojo Jutsu to researching Shibari and Kimbaku. That's amazing. Uh, I've never heard of anyone actually practicing hojujutsu in the modern age. I didn't even know it was really a thing, so that's fascinating. <laughs> Do you find that hojujutsu and shibari, now that you've experienced both, are very similar, or how was how is the difference between the two for you? Oh, they're actually quite different. Hojujutsu and uh, and shibari are really really different. At first. When I started to do my research, since there was an overlap in terms of uh, what I was coming across on the internet when I was searching for rope, um, there seems at first to be a lot of similarities. Um, but then, after further research, it's it's actually quite different. Like the the roots of shibari uh, and kimbaku, or, or like what I would say is like erotic um, rope, is a lot different from what is in hojujutsu. Mm. So. Okay. So yeah, so Hojo Jutsu, when I was learning it, um, basically it was all of, all about like, um, subduing capture and it had nothing to do with erotic art forms. The only thing that I would say, um, similarities that I would say are still there are some of the patterns yeah. and those patterns in sort of, in terms of like diamond patterns or, uh, tortoiseshell patterns, they're kind of still there. 
but uh, but basically, I think that is more to do with um, with Japanese culture, and I could definitely be wrong, but um, that's what I saw where the similarities were. But mm. once I started to get more into erotic um, rope bondage, it seems to it, it it seemed to stem from a different place, and and uh, and even um, having done some more research and attended some more classes, it definitely is definitely <laughs> definitely not the same. It's not where not where it, where it came from from uh, from my estimation and from what I've learned. But um, one of the things that I would say is that the restraint aspect of it is the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still about bondage. It's still about restraining somebody, but the intent is completely different. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what we've um, learned in in the classes. But again, uh, difficult to know sometimes where the information comes from. So great to hear someone who's actually well. And it. people are sometimes seduced by the myth of the centuries long tradition and make a direct <laughs> link. That is sometimes maybe a little bit of an exaggeration. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is when you're doing research into hojojutsu versus doing research into into um, erotic rope bondage, it's it's a lot different. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot different. Okay, yeah. so skipping ahead um, to now, one of your uh, facets of your rope and, and your practice in kink is correctional sadism, and we would love to hear all about it. So tell us. So um, another thing is is that I have a background in acupuncture, mm-hmm. and so I'm actually a practicing acupuncturist, and I teach acupuncture here where I live, um, and I've been doing acupuncture and teaching for probably around 17 years now. And before that, my background was in uh, uh, the Western sciences. So I had a background in human physiology, human anatomy. And um, and so I had always been interested, and this also stems back to my martial arts training, because we learned how to use pressure points to harm people, mm-hmm. but then we also had to heal them afterwards. So if we had hurt somebody, then we'd have to actually like make sure that we could train with them again. Um, so, we, so, so we didn't want to, we, we did not want to harm anybody, but still sometimes with hurt, um, there can still be things that go on. So, uh, I, I started to do this thing with, with, um, with when I was tying people, because in terms of the initial, um, negotiations, you're always asking, okay, are there any health conditions you ha- that you have? Um, are there any parts of your body that are hurting you right now? And a lot of times I would find that when I was tying people, they'd be like, oh, you know, I have this injury. Mm. So that's going to basically limit my play. And then I was like, well, how about if I use some of my knowledge in acupuncture, acupressure, pressure points, and body manipulation based on my anatomy and physiology knowledge to try and make it so that after we play, the area that you're feeling the restriction of the hurt is actually better afterwards instead of worse. And so instead of having to avoid certain areas that are injured is actually treating them differently and incorporating that into play. So would it be right to say that's a therapeutic dimension to your play then? Yeah, it's definitely a therapeutic dimension, but also um, might not be very pleasant to experience at the time. (laughs) So that's where the, that's where the sadism comes in. Would you have an example of how that works out in a given scene? Um, So I was um, negotiating a scene um, one time. I was at uh, it was at uh, Narex actually. Um, I can't remember which Narex it actually was, but I was um, negotiating a scene with somebody that I knew previously, but we'd never played before. But they had certain injuries and certain medical conditions that they were like worried about in terms of in terms of play, hmm. and not necessarily worried in terms of um, in terms of oh this is going to restrict where we're going to play, but it was also like okay well I just want to let you know that here are some of the things that I have. So 
Um, we have to be careful in terms of the intensity that we play at and definitely in terms of certain positions, body positions, etc. So then I broached the subject of, well, what happens if we play in a certain way that I um, would be, it'd be more therapeutic. It's probably still going to be uncomfortable. So that's where the sadism comes in. And sometimes if people are, are not into a little bit, you know, if they're not a little bit of a masochist, then mm-hmm. it might not be for them. Um, think of like getting a deep, therapeutic massage mm. like deep tissue massage where it hurts but then afterwards you feel better oh in thailand um, we're very familiar with the massage that hurts but feels better afterwards <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly exactly so that's basically what it is but also another aspect of, of corrective sadism the way that i use it is that i don't allow um the person that i'm playing with to go into subspace mm. so this is because they will not be able to react properly in terms of a way that would be therapeutic because they're not, if, if somebody's in subspace, they don't react in a way that, um, that would actually be beneficial for any issue that they have. So because do you, they'll, do they'll, you dump they'll, they'll a, a bucket of ice water on them if they start going into <laughs> subspace? No, actually, um, what I will use is actually I'll use pressure points to pull them out of subspace and I'll use sense. different body positions to pull them out of subspace because, um, there's a certain, in my mind, there's a certain rhythm to play. Mm-hmm. And if you start to keep on that rhythm, if you, that can actually bring on subspace. But if you actually break that rhythm in a, in a certain way, it prevents them from going into subspace, but also you have to do it in a way that's not jarring mm. because that will pull them out of the play space. Because to me, there is, there's like play space and then you can go into subspace. And then what can happen is, is that when they're in subspace, they're no longer aware of their own body in certain ways. Interesting. So it seems like you bring a pretty unique combination of skills and experiences to be able to do correctional sadism. Are there any tips or techniques you can share with listeners so that they can include some of this in their play? Well, interesting you say that because I actually do have a class that I used to teach on introduction to correctional sadism. And the biggest thing is to take things slowly and just like any new skill is to play around with it first in a, in a more laboratory, like a lab setting rather than in a going to a, a scene right away. Um, it's just like if you're learning a, a certain pattern in rope and you're doing that in a lab space instead of in a play space. There are ways to incorporate a playful um, attitude into it, but a lot of times if it's something that's new to you, um, it's best not to just dive right into it and, and, you know, let the chips fall where they may, especially with correctional sadism, because the first thing I say with correctional sadism is usually, um, the first thing is people usually can have like tight muscles and you can find these areas just by pressing in certain areas and you go, Oh, this is, yes, this is where I'm tight. This is where my restricted movement is. And usually I show that with like a uh, range of motion while like, uh, while starting to play. And then after the correctional sadism show that the range of motion can actually increase afterwards. Mm. So instead of increasing, um, and increasing resistance, it actually decreases resistance to play. Um, with, if you, if, if, a, if somebody goes into subspace while you're doing this, they may allow you to go past a healthy range of motion and then, uh, and healthy range of motion being a range of motion that would be healthy with the restriction that they're currently having. Um, and then that would actually increase the tension in the muscle rather than decrease the tension in the muscle. 
Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. Listeners like you make this podcast possible. We want to continue making this podcast for you for a long time. And to do that, we need your support. Please go to ropepodcast.com to buy rope video lessons from experts so we get a small commission on your purchase at no extra cost to you. In addition, a really great way to help us is donating on Patreon. A one-time amount or a monthly pledge that can be as little as the cost of your morning coffee makes a big difference to us. And you will gain cool perks like behind-the-scenes photos and the ability to vote on future podcast topics. Go support us on ropepodcast.com because you love rope too. So it seems to me, Tiger, that it's really important to have a good understanding of body mechanics to do what you're doing. And for our listeners who haven't had 17 years of experience <laughs> in acupuncture, what would you recommend as a way to get started in understanding the human body better in the context of rope? Um, well, what I would recommend is actually is actually playing around with it with your partner uh, very slowly at first. Um, I do. I also <laughs> also teach a body mechanics class, mm -hmm. a couple different types of body mechanics classes. And in terms of the body mechanics, I always say that if you look at uh, the what's quote unquote the normal range of motion of a joint, this is as far as I'm concerned, you can kind of throw that out the window unless you're actually studying anatomy and trying to study this, because everybody has a different range of motion, mm. and what their natural range of motion might not might not actually be what the range of motion that is in a lot of like textbooks per se. And so usually what I say is if somebody has a restriction on one side, like they say, Oh, you know what? I have pain in my right arm. Then you go through the range of motion very carefully in terms of a passive range of motion by moving their arms in different ways, flexion and ex flexing and extending the elbow and, and the, the shoulder and the wrist and doing circumduction, which is moving the shoulder around and doing it slowly so that they, so that the person you're playing with can tell you where they're feeling the restriction, especially if you, if you are not used to feeling it yourself, is to get a lot of feedback from the person you're playing with. And another thing is to, to always remember that people will not always react in the way that you think they're going to react to something or think you might think they have a certain range of motion when they actually don't. And this is why you have to be very careful. So it's not just about learning anatomy in general. It's about learning a certain person you're going to play with. It is always about learning a certain person because um, anatomy actually is a guideline. Like when you're looking at anatomy textbooks or even studies, this is a guideline. There are a lot of different, um, a lot of different variations in terms of human anatomy. Um, and this plays into this concept of, oh, you want to know where you want to place the rope because if you place the rope in the wrong area, then you're going to hit a certain nerve. The thing is, is that certain nerve pathways are quite set in most people. And a lot of the anatomical studies show that the variation in the nerve pathway is very small. Other nerves have large variations in nerve pathway. Therefore, you can't really tell because you're like, okay, in 80% of the population, the nerve pathway will be in this area, you know, plus or minus one centimeter. But then in other people, uh, in like say the, another 20%, you can have seven different variations in nerve pathways, depending on the nerve you're talking about. And also, you can have different sensitivities. So the nerve pathway might be the same, but the person might not respond to pressure on that area the same as somebody else. So you can only use anatomy 
as a guideline until you actually know that person that you're playing with, what their anatomy is like, what their sensitivity is like, what their levels of sensitivity are like. Okay, so applying um, something to everybody seems like a mistake. What other mistakes do people make in body mechanics? Um, one of the things is assuming people react will react a certain way because they've played with other people and they'll, oh, I do this move and then this is how the person reacts. I can give a, an example. This one time I was playing with somebody that I knew um, and we were doing a takedowns. And so takedowns to be done safely, you have to have a, a knowledge of anatomy to know which way the joints bend and where you can put pressure. And usually if you put pressure in a certain area, a person will bend a joint in a certain way. Um, this one person I was playing with did not <laughs> react anywhere, anywhere near what anybody else that I've ever played with um, reacted with. And instead of actually, when I applied a pressure point in terms of trying to do a body manipulation, um, instead of bending the joint, they straightened it. Mm. Because their reaction was not to go with a certain movement, was to go the exact opposite. Like their, their wiring, for whatever reason, um, told them that they shouldn't actually just go with something that's done. They should resist it. Did you get punched in the face as a result? <laughs> no, actually, they, they 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 fell down with the takedown, but they but they almost hyperextended their knee mm. because they actually straightened their knee instead of bent it. Mm. Um, which which actually also goes into thing. I, I say that in general, that there are three different types of people. There are yes people, there are maybe people, and there are no people. Yes people will just go with the flow. Um, and they're they're helpers. So if you try move their arm in a position, they'll start to move their arm in that same way. Um, if you lift their arm up and let go, they'll keep their arm up. They won't mm. drop their arm. So um, uh, a maybe person will be a little bit more hesitant, but they'll be like, oh, I think this is what the person wants me to do. So I'm going to, I, I think that I should help them. So they will almost try and mimic what you're doing as well. Um, but also like if you if you lift their arm up and you drop it, their arm will drop a little bit, but then they'll hold it. They're like, oh, was I supposed to hold my arm up? I don't know if I was supposed to hold my arm mm -hmm. up. And then there are no people. But basically, if you lift their arm up, they'll just, and you let go, they'll just drop it because they're like, I'm not going to keep my arm where you tell me to put it. So, yeah, so, yeah. that's really interesting. <laughs> so, how do you play differently with those different types of people? Well, it all depends on what's pre negotiated. So, um, so no people. Um, if they also like to struggle, no people like to struggle. So they like to fight against what is going on. Mm. But this takes a lot, uh, uh, this takes a, a lot more skill because then you have somebody that's actively resisting you. And when they're actively resisting you, this brings another dimension to the play. Um, like say if you push somebody's arm away from yourself and they want to resist, they're going to push back against you. So if you let go really suddenly, their arm will just fly back at you and hit you. So it's a higher risk for both partners when resistance is involved then. Yes, it's definitely a higher, higher risk. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of pressure points, uh, Tiger, so you've learned pressure points in martial arts and obviously you have something similar in acupuncture. How did you uh, find that you enjoyed pressure points and what made you want to bring them into your kinky and play side? Well, when I was, like I said, when I, when I lear initially learned pressure points um, in martial arts, I didn't have any um, knowledge about acupuncture. And then when I started to learn about acupuncture, I realized that a lot of these pressure points were actually acupuncture points mm -hmm. or falling very uh, close to where these points were. Um, and in terms of when I was training, 
like I said, when you're doing martial arts, you are, you are actually hurting somebody. And of course, you're not trying to harm them when you're, when you're training. Um, but then if you ended up accidentally harming them because you were lacking a certain level of control as a beginner, we had to learn how to heal them, but we used acupressure points to heal as well. So they could feel really good. So in terms of incorporating the pressure points into play, it was interesting because if I wanted to be more sensual and actually have a, a make the make the person that I was playing with feel good, I could use a, I could use an acupuncture point to do that and, and a certain method of massaging that acupuncture point. But if they wanted to have a, a, a little bit more intense sensation, or if you're going more, if you're like more of a have a more of a sadistic nature, then you could actually um, apply a different kind of pressure to that point. So it turned out that, and a lot of times I actually use pressure points without even thinking about it. And it all depends on what I want to happen in that scene. If I want, I use, I use pressure points a lot in terms of body manipulation because they're great for compliance, but also they're really good to make somebody feel good as well. And also you can use it to make them not feel great. If that's kind of what they're going for, you're going for. Mm. Um, pressure points are fairly intense uh, as stimulation, I say as a bottom who's experienced them. Um, how do you include them safely in your scenes? Well, for anybody that's starting off with pressure points, what I always tell them to do is go slow. Mm. Go very, very slow. You don't go from zero to 100 with pressure points. If you learn a pressure point on, you learn a pressure point and you say, hey, I learned this pressure point. Can I try it on you? And they're like, sure, yeah. And then you just give like 100% in terms of pressure. You don't know how they're going to react. You don't know how sensitive they are. And you can actually cause damage. Um, so one of the things is, is to always start off slowly, gradually increasing pressure. And pressure points can also be located in slightly different areas. Um, when we say where a point is located, um, and if, if you look at any sort of textbook, um, they give you a general location. This, this is where you start looking for the pressure point. That doesn't mean that's exactly where it is. So also you have to be very uh, cognizant of, of what you were doing, where you were pressing, um, sometimes you might, you think you have the right location, but you don't because your partner is not responding. The correct, the, the correct thing to do is to stop, gradually apply pressure. And if you get up to like 50, 75% pressure and there's still no reaction, then you stop mm. because you shouldn't really start to get, get a reaction even at like 10% pressure, 25% pressure, depending on the person you're working with. But if you, if you have to go to 100% pressure right away, um, you're probably going to start to do damage. So, Very interesting. Yeah. So we're not going to be able to do a full class on how to play with pressure points today. And definitely we recommend listeners take a proper class before they try to use them. But that being said, could you recommend a couple points that are good for beginners, Tiger? Yeah, so it depends on what you want to do with them. One of the points that I usually start off with is actually um, in the meaty part, right between the thumb and the index finger, mm. if you push, if you, if you basically push your thumb right against your index finger, you'll see that at the base of the thumb, a nice little meaty portion will pop up. Yeah. And if you, and if you basically use your thumb, if you take the index finger and put it on the palm underneath that point and your thumb and you put it on the top of that point mm-hmm. and you press really slowly, you'll start to get an achy sensation. Mm. Um, this is a, a, a very well known acupuncture point. Um, called Hogu. Uh, it's also known as a uh, large intestine four. Uh, it basically is used a lot for, um, it's good in terms of therapeutic. It's good for headaches. 
it's good for menstrual cramps. It's good for, um, yeah, it's good for a lot of different things. Um, it helps to reduce pain in a lot of different areas. can be used for like toothaches, depending on how you use it. But it's relatively safe and really difficult to, um, well, I wouldn't say difficult because then people like press too hard and, and then you can actually get residual pain. Mm. Um, it is, it is just an easy point to find and an easy point to play with in terms of pressure. And also when you pinch in there, you'll actually also feel the muscle belly and you'll feel an area. And if you play around, you'll feel you can get to the exact area that you need to apply the least amount of pressure to get the biggest result. Oh, so that's a good practice in your sensitivity as the top then. Yes, yes. It's a good point to practice that sensitivity. And what about your favorite pressure points? So I'm guessing you use more uh, sophisticated and complex ones. What, what ones do you love to use in your own play? So it's very interesting because, uh, you know, having this question and, and uh, having actually talked to, like, uh, of course, uh, Miranda's one of my partners um, from Friction Live, and, uh, and one thing she was telling me is that, like, I use pressure points without even thinking about it. Like, of course, we, we've already pre-negotiated the use of pressure points, so I don't have to worry about, like, accidentally using a pressure point when I'm not supposed to, because that's part of our, part of our, like, pre-negotiation. But, um, I use pressure points a lot for body manipulation, and so a couple that I use a lot is if you actually clench your jaw and feel right by the angle of your jaw, you'll feel a muscle pop out. And a lot of times what I'll do is I'll just use the back of my hand or a part of my hand and I'll press on that point just to move, just to move my partner's head to the side to expose the neck. Yeah, I hate that so one. It's, a, it's super painful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thank thank you, Tiger, for the gift of that point I that imagine. Maya has been enjoying for months like, now since that, we took yeah. your class. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's just, one, yeah. Uh, so if you use the, if you use the back of your hand, yeah. <laughs> so if you use the back of your hand, just just you don't apply a lot of pressure the person will move their head but if you use the tip of your thumb the tip of your thumb and you press in then it then it becomes very painful hmm. definitely uh, another one i use is at the uh, on the top of the um on the top of the shoulder so it's half it's like if you go halfway between the middle of the neck and the end of the shoulder um and at the highest point on the upper fibers of the trapezius muscle there's another point there And a lot of times I actually like to use my chin. So if you've taken my class, then you know that I like to use my chin mm. on that point, or I like to use my elbow in that point, or I like to pinch it with my fingers. Um, the contraindication, I must say the contraindication for this point is that you cannot heavily stimulate this point on, on someone that is pregnant. Okay, so that's good to know. Because this point can actually um, induce uh, uterine contraction. So unless you have pre-negotiated child <laughs> delivery as part of your scene. And... <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so yeah, there, there, and this is one thing with pressure points. There are a lot of pressure points that are contraindicated during pregnancy. Hmm. There are certain points that are contraindicated for different conditions. And this is why it's really important to actually get um, good training in it. Okay. Yes. That's not something you just like start messing around with without knowing what you're doing. No, no. And, 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 and in all honesty, like, cause even in the courses I, I teach, I do teach some pressure points that are like more, more dangerous than others. Like, remember, we're doing edge play. Like, this is not safe play. Um, and so you have to really, you have to really be risk aware. But another thing that I, that uh, one thing that is, is really becoming quite apparent to me is that the Dunning Kruger effect is alive and well. Mm. And so the first thing about Dunning Kruger Club is that you don't know you're in Dunning Kruger Club. Yeah. 
So, and for those that don't know, Dunning Kruger Club means that if you if you don't have a lot of knowledge in something, then you don't know if you can do it properly. The least, if you the less amount of knowledge you have, you think you can do something safely, but you actually can't. <laughs> so. All right. Yeah. Thanks for the reality to check, Tiger. <laughs> um, but you have many kinks that you pair with rope, not just pressure points um, and correctional sadism. So how do you decide uh, what you're going to include in a scene? So first of all, I, I basically, when I go through a negotiation with somebody that I'm going to do a scene with, I, I basically say, oh, here's my, here's my, um, here's my tickle trunk. Here's, here's my play bag. Here are all the things that I have in it. I have rope. I've got pressure points. I've got knives. I've got floggers. Um, uh, you know, I've got like nipple clamps, all these different things, whatever, whatever I have in my bag. And then I say, um, how do you feel about the incorporation of these things into a scene? So if somebody approaches me and say, oh, I want to do a rope scene, then I'll say, oh, do you just want to do rope or do you want to do rope that includes a rough body play or pressure point play or toys? And then I go from there because if somebody just says, oh, I just want a rope scene, then I have to say, okay, we're just using rope. But I'm like, but I can still do pressure points with rope, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so then it goes, okay, well, um, what type of rope scene do you want? Do you want a sensual scene, a sadistic scene, et cetera? Do you want a correctional, a correctional sadism scene? Um, and so I make sure that all the tools that I have on hand are things that, that the person I'm playing with is going to give me a green light to use. And if there are any exceptions or if there are any limits to those, to those toys, how they want them used, on which points of their body they want them used, um, then that goes into play. But as soon as I've done that and I've done a, a general um, negotiation, taking into consideration, of course, um, hard, like hard boundaries, soft boundaries, et cetera, um, then I basically go uh, very organically. A lot of times I will lay out, sometimes I will lay out the toys because a lot of times laying out the toys in front of the person you're playing with can also elicit certain reactions from them. Mm. Other times, if it's negotiated, I said, do you want to know what's coming first or do you not want to know what's coming? You know what the possibilities are, but you just won't know when they're going to come. And in that case, then some things might come out um, at times when they might not expect them to. Nice. But, this is, but this, is, yeah, this is where negotiation is really important. Hmm. So that's before the scene. And what about getting feedback during the scene? Um, so feedback during the scene, I'm the type of person that I really like uh, vocal feedback. So if something is going on that you don't like, I, I would prefer that you'd say, no, I don't like that. Mm. Or use your safe word. Or basically using the color system like, oh, yellow in terms of it's going too far. Green, keep going. Or red, stop. We've got to stop the scene. And then we have to have a discussion of why the scene was stopped. Um, a lot of times I, I, I try, because when I first play with somebody new, I always make sure that it's not a very, not necessarily a very intense scene. Mm. Always make sure that it's more of an introductory scene where I start to introduce certain things and I won't take them to like, say, a, a culmination level of, of how it could be used, but it's just an introduction. And so if they're like, oh, man, I was hoping you were going to do more with that, then I'm like, you know what? Next <laughs> time we play, I will do more with that. Leave if, them wanting more. Leave them wanting more. Yeah, you don't need to. You don't need to um, pull out all the stops in your in your in your first scene because that might you might go a little bit too quickly. Um, and might cause issues that they might say, somebody might say that they want something, but especially if they don't have any experience in it, then they, they don't know. Mm. So they can't actually say if they're going to, they might say, oh, you know what? I really want to experience this. 
And there's been situations where somebody says, I really want to experience this. Like I was playing with somebody and they were like, I'm really into needleplay. I want to experience acupuncture. So I was like, okay, let's do one acupuncture needle at one point and then, and then see how you feel about that. So it wasn't even really a scene. It was like, this is an exploratory thing. You have, you've given me the okay to needle this point and at a certain intensity. So I'll needle it to a certain intensity. You tell me what you, if, how you feel about it and if you'd like to incorporate that in a scene or not. And so they were like, oh man, I love needle play. Just go ahead. Do, do your thing. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to go slowly because the sensation is a lot different than needle play. So I needled a point and I just needled it and I said, okay, now you're going to start feeling something here. And as soon as they felt it, they're like, nope, 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 definitely 100% no, don't like that, <laughs> don't like that at all. And they were like, this is so completely different from needle play. And I said, yes, but they were under the impression that it would be similar. And just I knew that it's not the and I think fantasy, fantasy and reality can often be different. Oh, so people. different. So I think that's uh, extremely sensible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so a lot of times when I first start playing with somebody, I, 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 always, I always slowly introduce things and slowly ramp up the intensity. Mm, that seems like very, very wise advice. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Tiger, for sharing with us today. And you definitely bring a very interesting uh, skill set to the table. If our uh, listeners want to hear more about your techniques and your therapeutic approach to play and all of that, uh, where are good places to find you on the Internet? Um, the best place to find me on the Internet would actually be FetLife mm -hmm. um, at WoodenTiger69. I, I am on um, I am on Instagram, but I but my Instagram is private, so I don't really accept a lot of people um, mm -hmm. onto there. Like I do have some criteria that's too lengthy to go into the show, but um, but I also post my images through Friction Live. Friction Live on um, on Instagram is is an open account, and I post a lot of my pictures there. And if people want to reach me there, uh, I I basically I'm in charge of 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 that account, so I will respond there as well. But uh, the best thing to do is to follow me on um, follow me on FetLife, and then you can send me a message on FetLife as well. Mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't um, I don't accept friend requests from people that I don't know or who I have not interacted with for a while on some certain level. Um, so if it's a random person contacting me asking for a friend request without reading my profile, um, then it's like oh friend request. I'm like oh you didn't read that I wanted you to send me a message <laughs> first. So then I don't so then I don't accept those right okay. so. So it's best to just follow me, and but I, I but if anybody uh, if anybody sends me a message there, then I'm I'm more than happy to respond. Okay, excellent. So that's all from us today at the Rope Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from, and come find us on our FetLife page and our Instagram, both at Rope Podcast. Indeed, Maya, we now have an Instagram, uh, and so if you have a question related to Rope, we'd love to answer it, of course, in one of our future episodes, and so you can now message us either on FetLife or on Instagram. <laughs> and if you like this podcast and would enjoy more episodes, find all the ways to support us on our website, rockpodcast.com. And in particular, please consider supporting us directly on our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying.